So today we are going, we are uh, finishing up the final Sunday in a series we're calling Good News, the Gospel in Public Life, where we look at um, several of the ways that the gospel interacts or touches um, different areas of culture or public life. The reality of the Christian faith is that it's, uh, we're called to bring our faith to bear in public, right? We can't escape being public. We can't escape being people in public, but we are called in some real and true way uh, to have our faith, to have, uh, to have our way of life uh, impact the way in which we engage publicly. And so today, we're going to look at the final message in this series. Next week, uh, we're going to begin a series that's called uh, Well Not... I just forgot the name of the series. Well, not crazy is what we're going to we're calling it, and it's all about how uh, how the gospel should make us well and not crazy, right? So that'll be fun if you're crazy. So you should call all your crazy friends and tell them to sit here. It'll be great for them. Uh, we'll take one we'll take one week off to observe Pentecost Sunday, but uh, that's what we'll be doing as we head into the summer. I'm pretty excited about that series of messages. So uh, come on back. So we've been in this series. Uh, since right after Easter, and we've been looking at a number of areas that, uh, where the gospel or where our public faith meets culture. Uh, last week on Mother's Day, we talked about politics. I hope that you all enjoyed that message. Most of you are back this week, so that's a good sign for me, right, that you're here. Uh, no one, I didn't get any angry emails, no anonymous letters. This is, it was very good. It made me very, quite happy to be able to speak on politics and not have anything like that happen. Uh, but this week, uh, we are going to talk about how the gospel uh, shapes the ways in which we engage culture in two specific uh, moral or ethical areas, around two specific moral or ethical issues. And those two issues are sex, no lightning bolt, and money, sex and money. Now, Christians are called by God and instructed in the Scriptures to engage both of these issues in ways that look different, right? In ways that look different from the majority of people in our culture, or at least look different from the ways that the majority of the people in our culture view these two issues, right? And actually, the ways in which Christians engage with these particular, two particular ethical issues of sex and money, moral or ethical issues, says a lot about our faith. It says a lot about who we follow as Christians. It says a lot about the church. If we have, uh, in many ways, a fundamentally different way of viewing these two issues from the predominant culture, which we do, then why, the question is, do we say that that is a good thing? Why is that a good thing? If culture, by and large, has determined that the ways in which they orient themselves around sex and money are good, right? That's the way they've oriented their lives. And ours are predominantly different. The church's ways of orienting ourselves around these two issues are different. Then why, then, do we say that the way we orient our lives around these two issues is good? Well, that is the question I want to answer today. Why is it good? Why is it good? Why is the way that Christians view sex and money a good thing? And why should we not only attempt to the best of our ability to live up to these biblical norms, 
in this regard, but also live these values out in culture in a way that makes people in our communities uh, look and wonder at the ways in which we live. I want to just put uh, out at the outset of this message that the church of Jesus Christ is uh, called to live in these two areas in such a way that we are attractive to culture, to people, that our life looks attractive to people. This isn't, it shouldn't be at least, a put-off. It shouldn't be something that drives people out of the church, because historically, the Christian, Christian stances on these two issues has not uh, pushed people away, but in some real and true sense, drawn them in, drawn them in, which is funny, isn't it? Because you would think that our standards being different than those of the world would cause people to run away, right? It would force people away. But these, particularly our orientation around these two issues, has actually brought people in, in mass, throughout the history of the Christian church. Now, the genesis of the message uh, that you're hearing here today mostly comes from a quote by a pastor named Tim Keller. And uh, he is a pastor in New York City, and speaking on these issues, this is what he has to say, this quote here. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money, <laughs> right? So this is, the, this is the quote that really kind of sparked in me the, the need or the desire to single out these two issues as two of the predominant issues or the moral or ethical standards that uh, set Christians apart in culture. They always have, and I would argue they always will. So Christians have always believed, we've always believed this from our very inception, that rather than being an impediment to the message that Jesus is Lord, uh, it was actually our standards in these regards is one of the reasons that the church grew like it did. We've always done it this way, and we've always believed that to be true. You would think that it would work the opposite way around, wouldn't you? But actually, it was these radically different, different ethical standards that drew people into the church rather than pushing it away. And what I hope to do in this message is to help us catch a fresh vision for what God is calling this church to and the church to in 21st century America, calling us to a radical cultural ethic that looks vastly different from the culture which surrounds it, yet is so compelling and beautiful that people just can't stay away. Maybe for you, Christian ethical standards about things like sex seem puritanical or prudish or restrictive, right? Or Christian orientations, towards, Christian orientations towards money seem unwise at best and personally hazardous at worst. Well, I would tell you that you have, uh, if you have those opinions, you've uh, either never seen these teachings in their full light and beauty, or you have simply been subsiding on a watered-down version of these Christian teachings that's just about following rules instead of, uh, instead of enduing these teachings with the power and truth that they have. So many of us have just subsided on, on Christian teachings about things like sex, right, 
And it's just simply been about following rules. And it hasn't been about the beauty and the grace that comes along with these realities in the scriptures. I want to... uh, uh, These Christian ethical positions are about beauty and about flourishing, about lives filled with the grace and the love of God. Rather than being restrictive, these teachings should open up our hearts to the wide vistas of God's good world. Rather than limiting our uh, personal freedom and fulfillment, these teachings actually free us from the false gods and false assumptions that keep us in this world bound and broken. I hope you can see that as we truly embrace Christ-centered postures towards uh, money and sex, we experience freedom in life, and our community will be a better place because of it. Not just our church, but our entire community will be a better place because of it. So this morning, I want to dig into the scriptures a bit uh, to see what we can learn from what Paul said to the Ephesians, what Paul said to the Ephesians. If you can just throw up that whole teaching text that first slide, real fast. So this is what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." So in our teachings for today, Paul is addressing the Ephesian church. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman world at this time, uh, just behind Rome and Alexandria. And what makes uh, Paul's emphasis here today so important is because of the type of city that Ephesus was. Uh, Ephesus was this large, important city, but it was also a religious center. It was probably the most predominant religious center of Paul's day. And most of that had to do with the, a temple that was there, a religious cult was the, that was there around the goddess Artemis or Diana. Actually, in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, and this was one of the seven great uh, wonders of the ancient world. People came from all over the world to see the temple of Artemis. It was gigantic. Uh, I should have had a picture for today, but if you go online and Google it, you can see it. It was this big, beautiful, gleaming structure, right? And it it became the center or the focal point of the life of Ephesus. And because of uh, this uh, center in, in Ephesus, people streamed into this city. Now, uh, most historians will say that at this time, uh, Artemis was the, at the time that Paul wrote this letter, Artemis was the most important or most worshipped deity in the Greek and Roman pantheon. So more people spent more time worshipping this god than any other god in, in, the, in the Roman pantheon at the time. And because of that, Ephesus just exploded. But what's interesting about 
this temple. And what's interesting about the worship of Artemis in particular is that Artemis was the god of fertility. Artemis was the god of uh, fertility and mothering, all right? So she was very prominent and very important. And because of the worship of Artemis, because of uh, the, the ways in which if Ephesus was um, situated around the worship of Artemis, these two uh, ethical issues, right, of sex and money became very, very important to the Ephesians. Because not only was uh, Ephesus the center of the, re- of the religious environment of its day, but in, in the ancient times, they didn't really have banks in the same way that we think of banks today. But because the, uh, these temples were cultural centers on top of just houses of worship, and there was a lot of commerce that was happening around um, the worship of these gods, um, temples kind of functioned as banks. And so by the time that Paul wrote this, the largest bank in the Roman world was the Temple of Artemis. It was the largest bank in the Roman world at the time. It's so big and so safe, in fact, that the Caesars kept the majority of their private wealth in Ephesus. They didn't keep it with themselves in Rome. They kept it in Ephesus because it was so safe, and this bank had such a good reputation. So Ephesus was the center of money, right, in the Roman world in many regards. And because Artemis was the god of fertility, right, and we know what uh, that has to do with, it was also a center of uh, sexual expression, because involved in the worship of Artemis very often were temple prostitutes. There were also priestesses who were, uh, had to be virgins in order to be a priestess, but they also uh, had temple prostitutes. And part of the way that you worshipped Artemis was by visiting these temple prostitutes. This was part of the religious system of the day. And so in Ephesus, you have all of this kind of ethical and moral questions swirling around. And in this context, Paul writes to the church, right? Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and what does he say in verse 17? So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. What does Paul single out as the two primary issues that must be avoided in Ephesus? Sexual issues and money issues. Surprise, surprise. And to the people in this city, Paul is very, very clear. He says, rid yourself of greed, right? Rid yourselves of the love of money, And rid yourselves of the type of sexual impropriety or impurity that is common in Ephesus, right? He's he's saying this. Live different lives, lives handed to you by Jesus. Live kingdom lives that exemplify kingdom standards as a way of pointing to the reality of the God that you serve. For Paul, the way that Christians in Ephesus conducted themselves in these two areas set a ton about what they were becoming, about who they were and who they were becoming. 
Were they becoming more like the humanity that they were created to be, or were they becoming more like the culture that surrounded them? And it was in these two areas, both sex and money, that stood out, that, that Paul wanted to make clear to these people that these two standards, these two moral or ethical issues are important, and they determine how you position yourself in culture. Now, here's the rub. If you were a Christian and you took this seriously, right, you know what that meant for you at this time? It meant you had to, to a certain extent, opt out of the social and economic systems of the day. So you might not have been able to keep your money in a bank, right? You might, you might have been ostracized from the economic systems of your day because you were holding to these standards about money. And you were also had to opt out of the so, social and political uh, systems of the day because they revolved around uh, the temple and this sexual impropriety. And so the two, two of the primary systems in their world Christians were called out of and in some ways, they were ostracized. In many ways, they were very ostracized by this. Uh, th- this made life more difficult for them, not easier. Does this make sense? And yet, Paul still seems to believe that they need to hold to these standards for some reason. For some reason, they needed to be called out from amongst them, right? They need to be called out and to be called up to a higher standard of living in order to uh, reflect or show back into culture the type of God that they served. And surprise, surprise, in our day, it's the same thing. America is the wealthiest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world, we make Rome look like Holstein, Iowa. That's a town named after a cow in Iowa, right? We, uh, the, the level of wealth and affluence in our society here in America has never been seen before in the history of the world. And to think that we are untouched by these issues, by these money issues and by these sexual issues, is a lie. Because we are. We are all in some real and true way implicit or... Um, not implicit, but we are in, engrossed in a society that is, uh, that is worshiping both sex and money in some real and true sense. And as followers of Jesus, we are called in some real way to come out or away from that reality in order to witness to the world about the type of God that we serve. This is not something that Paul wrote Uh, 2,000 years ago to a church that no longer applies to us. It is uh, real and true. The world's sexual attitudes in our culture uh, are not nearly as formally religious as these, uh, as in these cultures, right? Uh, We don't have temple prostitutes at at the church down the street. That's not how, thank God, how things work here but we most certainly worship at the altar of personal freedom, don't we? We most certainly see sexual expression as a right that everyone has, uh, so we have so, and we have so thoroughly sexualized our minds that we can't even uh, sell a cheeseburger on TV without making some allusion to sex, right? 
I don't know about you, but I would like my cheeseburgers and sex to be about as far away from each other <laughs> as possible. Don't bring it near my cheeseburger, please. But seriously, what's the number one marketing strategy in our world? Sex sells. Because it does. Because it does. And we have so sexualized ourselves in so many ways that we have, that in some ways we're not even aware of it. Some ways we're not even aware of it. We are not exactly like the ancient world to which Paul was writing. But these two issues, these two moral or cultural issues, are most certainly alive and well in our context. Sex and money in this way are, in some ways, are fundamentally the same, it's, it's fundamentally the same problem that we're dealing with in our culture that they were dealing with in theirs. They are gods. They are two things that substitute in our hearts for the love of God. So in so many ways, our culture today is similar to the, to the culture of the ancient world. And the Christian witness in culture, when we accept and live up to the type of lives that Paul is calling uh, the Ephesians to, uh, still looks rad radically countercultural today, as radically countercultural as it looked 2,000 years ago. It really does. It really, really does. And so, for the remainder of our time here today, I just want to look briefly at these two issues a little bit more in depth, uh, so we can hopefully... Uh, so we can quickly see how Christians are called to orient themselves in the world around these two ideas as we pursue the way of Jesus together in an attempt uh, to live up to his teachings, to his standard, and to his life. Not so that we can simply follow rules, but so that we can have the life that Jesus promised. Okay? So first thing we're going to look at is money. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts uh, verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And in that passage, this is what uh, Luke writes as he's telling the story of what the early church looked like. He says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early church's orientation towards money was quite different. It was quite different. And I know what you're thinking right now. Maybe you're not, but this is what I think when I read this passage. Do I have to go live in a commune? Do, <laughs> is Nick going to say we have to form a Grace Community Church commune, right? And I'll, buy, and I'll pool our money and buy groceries together. As nice as that would be, no, that's not what I'm saying. I, I really would prefer you to not see me when I wake up in the morning. We'll, we'll avoid that to the best of our abilities. But I do want you to see how radical the early Christians were in this regard, in the orientation towards their money. I don't really want to live in a commune, but I, but I do want to live 
with other Christians who view money this way. You see, one of the first things that begins to happen in the hearts of Christians, uh, of the heart of these early Christians, just weeks after Pentecost, is they stop treating their money like it belongs to them. They, they no longer treat their own resource like it belongs to them. They stop hoarding it. They stop uh, caring, and they start caring about other people and begin to liberally, right, share their money with other people. This is what they begin to do. They begin to sell land. If they have extra land that they don't need, they begin to sell it, and they bring it to the church and so that the church can distribute it to the poor. They stop treating their resource as though it actually belonged to them. And this is the way the church is called to live. This is a way of living that's far easier, I think, in cultures that don't worship money the same way American Western cultures do. If you live in a culture that's more impoverished, if you've ever taken a missions trip, it's far easier for those people to share their resource with one another than it is for us, right? Because we have our homes and our houses and our privacy fences, right? We have our tinted windows so nobody can see in our cars, right? We have, we have our own private bank accounts and we have our own 401ks and we want to keep it all parceled away and separate, don't we? And we want everybody else to be responsible for their own stuff, right? This isn't the way that Christians are called to live. It's not. It sounds, it, it's, it's almost blasphemous in America to say this. It is, isn't it? but it's not the way Christians are called to live. Christians are called to live in, with, a, with an orientation towards money that says, this doesn't ultimately belong to me. I'm called to use it for the betterment of others, primarily for the benefit of others. That's a radical thing to do in our world, isn't it? It looks so different and so weird, and people will freak out if you are overly generous, right? I don't know about you, but it's harder for me to receive generosity because it makes me nervous, like I'm, like I'm taking a handout, than it is for me to actually give, right? In our culture, we, we've, we've been so preconditioned by um, the ways in which our culture views money that it's even hard for us to receive a gift from somebody, isn't it, if we need it? It's, it's staggering how far American culture is from the Christian uh, ideal about money. It really is. And yet, it's the, one of the last things we think about as Christians. It really is. It's, one, it's, it's, far, it's pretty far down the list in the moral uh, issues that Christians talk about, isn't it? But it's so very important. You know, I've heard of a friend's church who was really captured by this idea, and so I think it was a church with like 2,000 people, and so they all decided they were going to go on vacation together, right? All of them, every single one of them. I think they rented an entire cruise ship or something. I don't know. Actually, they were in Colorado. But, uh, and so what happened was everyone in the congregation who had the resource to, 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 the money to do it said, okay, here's the money for it. And anybody who had resource enough to pay for those people who didn't have the resource to go laid down the cash for that, and they all went on vacation together like one big 2,000-person family. Crazy, right? 
I have another friend at a church uh, in Waco, Texas, and he gave a, uh, their pastor gave a talk about money, and he said at the end of the service, he said, okay, let's do it. Um, anybody in the congregation who has need, come up front. And he called them all to the front, and they all lined up. And he said, okay, anybody in this congregation who has resource, go talk to them. Crazy, right? Nuts. We don't do that, do we? That's a crazy thing to do. And, and to be honest with you, I think in many regards, it's harder to be the person who comes up and says, I have need, than it is to be the person who says, I got some extra, I'll give it out. Uh, my friend said he had one friend who had like his student loans wiped out that day. It's a radical orientation towards money that you're called to have in the church. It really is. And we as Christians, one of the things that's most beautiful to me that I see when people come to Christ is when they, be, they come to Christ and very quickly something happens to them and they, they turn in from like a, a, type, a hoarder to a kind of generous person. Have you ever seen this happen in someone's heart? That they, they all of a sudden like their, their, their tight grip on their wallet just it starts to loosen a little bit. I had a friend who I lived with in seminary and he was stingy is a good word. He was stingy. And I saw as he uh, delved into these teachings and he began reading the New Testament, he, he realized that he was stingy and he, he knew he had to start letting go of some stuff. He, he was a student in seminary and he had like $40,000 in the stock market. I was like, what in the world? I was like trying to like put butter on two pieces of bread and eat it as a sandwich. And he had $40,000 in the stock market. But... Uh, but, I, but, he, but he also was very stingy. He was always like, Nick, uh, you owe me that $2, right? He was always like, you know, Nick, I remember I got, I got the Cheerios this week, so you got to get the Cheerios next week. And I'm going, you got $40,000 in the stock market. But, uh, <laughs> but I saw as he began to catch this vision, his, his hands began to open a little bit, right? As the Spirit began to get at him, his hands began to open a little bit. He began to become a more generous person. Now, he didn't cash out all of his stocks, which would have been great for me, but, uh, but he did become a more generous person. And I think this is what we're being called to as the and a church, to be a more generous people. How countercultural, how radical it is in our day and age if we become a group of people who, who love one another and who care for one another and who, who, and who are truly and radically generous. The Bible says that no one in that early, uh, those, amongst those early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem had any need. None of them did. None of them had any need. Now, I'm not saying this is a reality that we can step into immediately. I'm not saying it's a reality that I'm even comfortable stepping into immediately, right? Full transparency here. But it is what the church is called to. It really is. We are not called to not have private, not have our own houses. We're not called to not have our own bank accounts. But we are viewed to, to view our own private bank accounts and houses as not ultimately belonging to us, as rather belonging to God. And that we, we leverage those resources for his kingdom and for his work. And you know what that will do to your heart as we, as a community, work towards that? Man, we'll be so free. 
will be so free and will be so much happier. Because show me some of the most unhappy people in American society, and I will show you people who t- keep a tight grip on their wallet. And show me some of the happiest people in American society, and I will show you people who have caught a vision for what it means to give and to not care, right? That deeply. It's true. It's true. And so this is one ethical issue, and I'm, I'm harping on money in particular a little bit long here, just because it's, it's the one that maybe we don't talk about all the time, but I think it's the one that out in culture looks more radical than any other, because there's no explanation. There's no explanation for a people who say, here, this doesn't belong to me. It's mine, but it doesn't ultimately belong to me. You can have it, because you know what? Christians don't have anything to lose, because what happens if I give all of my money away and I become poor? Jesus says that I'm blessed then. The worst, place, the, the worst place you could be is to be where Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor. It's as bad as it gets if you're a Christian. And that is still not a bad place to be. All right, so that's money. Sex. In 1 Corinthians, sex, that's the transition. Just, I just said sex, and then I transitioned into the next thought. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19, uh, Paul says this to the Corinthians church. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. So why are Christians so sexually restrictive? Why, why are we like this? Why are we so restrictive? Why do we say, uh, in essence, that sexual physical intimacy is only rightly expressed between two people within a marriage? Why do we say that? Why is that something we say? It's because this is, the, this is the way that God ultimately, we believe, intended it. That God in some real and true sense designed us. He built us like a car that was built to run on gasoline. He built us as a people who were meant to flourish within this context, within the context of Uh, of sexual expression happening between a man and a woman in a married relationship. Now, part of what's interesting about this idea is that for the the Hebrew people, uh, a marriage was not even finalized until after they had become, after they had had sex, after they had become physically intimate. That if, uh, if they had the ceremonies and they said the I do's, but they, uh, but they, there was some mix-up in the, in the actual wedding bed situation, they were considered not married. The, the very act of sex, of sex in the Old Testament is, I should have warned if there's any children in here, you should have been gone a long time ago. Anyways, uh, the very act itself was the, was the sign or the symbol of marriage, and God created it for that reason. This is what uh, Greg Boyd, a pastor from Minnesota, says. He says, intercourse is the sacred sign and seal of the marriage covenant, for it symbolizes the one flesh reality God has created with the two covenant partners. This is why in Scripture and in Jewish tradition, a couple wasn't considered married until they had intercourse. And we can say, well, Nick, why are we, why are we so restrictive? Why are we so prudish within the, within the Christian context? Why, do, why are we this way? Well, the reality is, is if God built us to function this way, and we chose not to, we would see all kinds of things going awry, right? So, like, if you built a car to run on gasoline, and you decided to put 
kerosene in it, you wouldn't be surprised when the car was uh, sputtering down the road, right? It wouldn't be surprising to you. Well, in America today, roughly 40% uh, of our adult population have an STD. 40, roughly 40% of our population have contracted at some point in their lives an STD. Children born into unmarried homes are something like 10 times more likely to, to live in poverty as uh, children born into wedded homes. We live in a society that, that has, has put on display the brokenness, the brokenness of uh, sexual expression outside the way that God had intended it to be. Now, there's always a caveat I want to give here. None of us are perfect in this regard. None of us have lived perfect lives as it revolves around sexual issues, right? I think, I think we can, most of us can say that. And the reality of this is not, not that God expects perfect people, but that God wants a church who is moving towards health in this regard in order that we could witness to the reality of who he is and who he created us to be. So oh, if you're in this room and you hear this and it hurts you, that's not my intention. That's not my intention. My intention is to hopefully spur us on, right? To live the type of lives that God has created us to live. And no matter what your past looks like in this regard, your future can be bright. It should be bright. God is inviting you into this beautiful expression of his love. And this might be hard. This is hard. It's hard to look at a 27-year-old American male and say, you can't have sex until you're married. It's a hard thing for that young man to hear, right? It's a hard thing for a woman to hear as well. It, it, it's bound up with a lot of brokenness and hurt in our society, isn't it? But the reality is that we are all called to it. Because the truth is, our culture idolizes sex. We worship it. We can't even, we can't even have, a, a, have a commercial on television selling us something without reminding us of sex. Sex is everywhere. And Christians are called to be so uh, deliberately countercultural in this regard that, we, that we, we show ourselves to be something different, something else, something better as a community of people. Too much uh, of a good thing is never actually good. And sex is a good thing. It was created good by God. It is not dirty. It is not defiled in and of itself. It is not taboo. It is not something that we should never talk about. It is a good thing. But when a good thing is expressed in a way that is not good, it creates all kinds of dysfunction and disorder in us and in our society and in our culture. And what God wants us to be is not dysfunctional, but functional. People who have aligned ourselves with him and his kingdom. People who have uh, found ourselves to be ambassadors of the goodness, the grace, the life, and the light of Jesus out into our world. Greg Boyd again says, Out of his passionate love for us, God is calling kingdom people back to honor the sign of the marriage covenant. He's calling on us to revolt against the perverse debauchery of our culture and manifest the beauty of God's original design for sexuality. This involves sacrifice and, for some, a certain amount of suffering. But that is what the kingdom is all about. 
For the kingdom always looks like Jesus, manifesting the character of God by his willingness to suffer out of love for others, to honor the will of his Father. But it's also the way to true wholeness, abundant life, and profound joy. This is not an easy teaching. We all have uh, what people, scientists call a biological imperative, most of us. And so it's not an easy teaching. And precisely because it's not easy, precisely because it's not easy, it is radically countercultural. And I don't know about you, but many of the hardest things in life turn out to be the most valuable. Some of the things that were the hardest to do or to achieve turn out to be, in many cases, the most valuable. And around this issue of Christian sexual ethics, what we are called to be as a church is a kind of beacon of hope and of, and of light, where people who have uh, lived outside of this sexual ethic come in and find healing and hope and encouragement. They're not ostracized, but they're loved, right? And as a community, we walk, as people in community, we walk towards wholeness, light, and beauty. It is not uh, an opportunity, and I, and I pray that you don't feel condemnation, because that's not what I'm going for. This is not a place where we find condemnation, but it is a place where we come in and we find love, and we find acceptance, and we find life, and life to the full. As kingdom people around both these issues of sex and money, if we can find for ourselves a way of being so radical and so countercultural that we exemplify in our very lives this reality, what will ultimately end up happening is people will see the beauty of our lives, the beauty and flourishing of our lives, and they will not be able to deny the fact that we've, we've locked on to something significant. They simply will not be able to. And as Christians out in the world, our message about sexual ethics and the ways in which we need to handle money are not bad news, but good news. They're good news for those who, uh, who have, have bowed down at the altar of sexual allure and desire. It's good news for the people who have kept such a tight hold on their wallets uh, that they've taken that money to the grave with them. For those people, this is good news. And we are called to live in it for God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we ask that uh, today, this week, as we progress through life, God, that you would help us to see that you love us and that you have designed us for a purpose, that you've called us into your kingdom for a reason, and that you've built us to flourish in this life. God, as your ambassadors, as ambassadors of your kingdom out into this world, we ask that you would help us. We confess, God, that in so many ways we fall short. We are sinful, God. Uh, we keep a hold of our money. We, we, uh, we hoard it for ourselves, God, and we do not give it to others. And we ask, God, that you would help us to be generous with our money and stingy with our bodies. Would you help us to be that type of people in the world? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.